Good morning. Welcome. My name is Raina Wells. I'm Acting Director of Business Affairs and Research at Ontario Media Development Corporation. And on behalf of OMDC, I'm pleased to welcome you this morning to the first Digital Dialogue Breakfast of 2016. I'm sure most of you know OMDC, but for those of you who don't, we're an agency of the Government of Ontario. OMDC's mandate is to help Ontario's creative industries grow, building strong creative media companies that can compete successfully at home and on the world stage. At these breakfast sessions, we bring people together from the different creative media industries to discuss issues and topics that we think are relevant across the industries. This morning, we hope that you'll make some new connections, meet some potential new partners, take away some new ideas that you can put to good use in your own companies. We've been doing these digital dialogue breakfasts since 2012, and this morning is our 14th breakfast. Today's topic is alternative financing, lessons from the trenches. It's no secret that securing financing is a challenge no matter what media industry you're working in. This morning, we're going to dive into the world of alternative financing, what it is, how it works, why it might be right for your company or your project. Our moderator is Catherine Tate. Catherine is president of Duopoly, a media consulting company, and the co-founder of iThentic, an Emmy Award-winning digital content company. Catherine is also a co-founder and director of Hollywood Suite, an independent broadcast company, and is on the board of directors of DHX Media. Please join me now in welcoming Catherine, and I'll let Catherine introduce our four panelists, Daniel Beckerman, Anne-Marie Maduri, Alex Jansen, and John Young. Thank you. Thank you, Raina. Um, one of the panelists, I think it was John, was saying earlier, how great is it that the OMDC puts out breakfast and invites you all <laughs> so early in the morning? We're um, really very grateful. Um, I think the um, just as a kind of preamble to this um, uh, discussion this morning, I want to highlight that the OMDC very kindly funded a study that I undertook with um, the CMPA and the participation of the CMF last year on capitalizing content companies in Canada and the challenges um, that companies face when they're looking for to grow and to access third-party capital to grow. So for any of you that are thinking about that, um, that study, and the, it's really... It's, not, it's really designed to be a, a, a kind of a how-to and, and helpful, not, um, not prescriptive in any way. But that's available on the CMPA website, the CMF website, and the OMDC website. So, um, and I have it right here. No, it, so really um, urge you, if you're thinking about that, to, to refer to, um, to that document. Um, and uh, just a, one word on this alternative word, because I think you're going to hear um, today that all financing is alternative. So we're, we're going to explore both corporate financing, but also uh, project financing. And, uh, and because our panelists are from very different backgrounds, it's going to be quite a wide-ranging conversation. So um, I do urge you to ask uh, questions if we miss something that's pressing to you in the conversation. 
So just by way of introduction, I'll start at the very end. The illustrious um, John Young, who is the CEO of a new, newly named Boat Rocker, which was known as Temple Street for a number of years. A fantastic company, one of our leading um, content companies based here in Toronto um, with titles like Orphan Black, um, big global success, as well as the next step um, that plays on Family Channel here in, in Canada, but um, I, I believe in many outlets across the world. So, John, we'll be looking forward to hearing from you. Alex um, Jensen is our multimedia, um, perhaps the digital of the of, uh, representatives, though I should say Boat Rocker also has an important digital arm. Um, but Alex is um, the owner of Pop Sandbox and um, most recently launched um, um, an indie music game called Loud on Planet X, financed in part through a Kickstarter campaign. So we hear a little bit about that. Anne-Marie um, Anne Maduri is, a, is our finance expert, and every panel needs one. She is somebody who is, um, provides um, advisory services to people like you um, in the entertainment business, but also on the technology, technology-enabled side of the equation as well. Very um, comes from an investment banking background, so somebody who will keep us grounded in our conversation. And, of course, we have to have a feature film producer on this panel because if you want to talk alternative financing, only feature film producers really understand what that means. And Daniel Veckerman, who among many... I mean, I was looking at his IMDb um, profile and he had 15 films he's involved with this year. It's crazy. Something like that. It's weird how they date it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that you're setting up your IMDb profile <laughs> to impress people like me. But in any event, probably the, the best known title of, of uh, recently is The Witch that won the Director's Award at Sundance and has gone on to be a box office hit as well. So one of those great um, rags to riches stories for an independent film that uh, we love to hear about. So that's our panel. Um, thank you all. We are going to start with the the notion of let's let's define what we mean by alternative financing um, for each of you. And um, starting with Alex, um, I'd love to hear about the crowdfunding experience. And oh, just so I I, I will say, we're going to talk about what alternative financing means, and then we're going to invite. And Marie, at some point, to comment on each of the companies and what she would advise them to do to grow or go to the next step. Um, so, Alex, tell us a little bit about what alternative financing means to you and what you've done in, in financing your own projects. Sure. Well, so my, my background originally is mainly film. I uh, first worked as a producer, worked in film distribution. Uh, the projects we've done, we've done a graphic novel, which was literally just out of pocket. We've done a lot of the traditional model stuff. Uh, we did a, an interactive documentary, which was with the National Film Board and TVO. We've done uh, some film projects working the same type of way. But I think the main thing that we're looking at is, I guess, the, the gaming side. And what we've done on to it most recently is our new game, Loud on Planet X. It's like a, an, indie music, an indie music game where you're defending your stage from alien with music and with a lot of different artists with uh, like Tegan and Sarah, Lights, Metric, Mets. Um, so we ended up going the crowdfunding route. It's been an interesting project that when we first started, it was going to be one platform only. We were looking at four bands. The The headliner band was uh, is a band up that uh, that did the score for our last game, Pipe Trouble. 
<clears throat> and as we moved along, we ended up picking up some great momentum. We got some great introductions. We got more artists involved. Um, Factor came in with additional money towards the licensing specifically. So our original money was with the OMDC through the IDM. Uh, and then the Factor Digital Marketing Fund, which is in itself um, a public fund, but a really innovative fund. And um, and what we ended up doing is getting to the point that we could then do eight artists. Then we we're looking at, well, how can we get to more platforms? Because we started taking the game out. We got incredible response at events like South by Southwest and Indicate East and, and PAX East last year. So at that point, we we're looking at, well, how can we raise the money to go to more platforms? Because we had interest from Sony and to go to console. And what we then did is, is basically decided to do a Kickstarter campaign that has allowed us to now, we're, we, we just launched on PS4, Steam for PC and Mac, iOS and Android. And the final roster is 14 artists. So we decided to go the crowdfunding route. We went to Kickstarter. I wouldn't recommend it for everybody. I think that things have really changed. I think when Kickstarter was cracking out, um, really not that long ago, three to five years. At that point, I think there was a really interesting sweet spot to get in there, especially for emerging uh, emerging projects. I think now uh, things have really flipped. You need to already have a certain amount of audience. So for us, it made sense because we had the the bands involved. And we have, uh, I guess, between the 14 bands, their Facebook reaches 5 million fans. And so what we were looking at there is knowing that the artists were going to be able to push it and get behind it. That was a big thing for us. Um, and I also come from uh, quite a bit of marketing. So I used to uh, oversee the home entertainment side for Mongrel Media and did a lot of releases there. And so we really, the Kickstarter itself was a very marketed campaign. So what we did is we actually worked with our rep at Kickstarter to figure out the best timing. Um, we ended up working with media in advance. We actually had publicists involved both a gaming publicist um, and then a music publicist, and we were able to coordinate everything so that the Kickstarter launched on a, on a Tuesday at, at 10 a.m. It was able to be a staff pick at 10.05, so that was because it was already on the radar. So it's really important if you are doing a crowdfunding campaign to work with your, your rep. Um, and then what we did very shortly after that is we negotiated exclusives. So Rolling Stone did the exclusive announcement of the all the bands uh, for the music market, and then Polygon did it for the gaming market. And so that we'd coordinated well in advance. Those features went live, and then that really helped us because then it led to, you know, Enter- Entertainment Weekly, Pitchfork, Boing Boing. Like we had, a, I think, 75 hits in the first day. So we actually cracked into about 15 grand, I think, in the first day. Um, and then as as uh, Kickstarter warned us, which is great, you end up, all your money's really at the start and then in the in the home stretch. So we actually did a second big wave in the home stretch where we announced another big artist. We announced Purity Ring and, and uh, to kind of get us over that final hump. So in the end, we ended up raising 53,000, which was which was great. And we were able to, um, it, a lot of that really hinged on the artist support. So all the way through some of the things that really worked out, we did, um, we did different rewards. So the base reward was the digital game. We did an original score, which was a seven inch green vinyl with original tracks from some of the members of Broken Social Scene, some of the members from up. So we did a physical object and then the higher tiers were being in the game, being drawn in the game style, uh, signed prints by some of the bands. And then that's where we really saw great traction was, you know, Tegan and Sarah and whatnot when they started tweeting it out. So, but I guess we'll, we'll hit into that a little bit later. Great. Um, and um, okay, I know that we've had a lot of conversations about the pros and cons of um, crowdfunding, so that was very helpful, Alex. Um, Daniel, how is it? That, what do you? How do you define alternative financing in your world? Um, yeah, well, I, I guess the word alternative is a very relative one, uh, so it might mean one thing to me sitting here, as I am in, in Canada, and, and uh, it might mean another if you're sitting in 
LA. In fact, they might think of our Canadian financing as exotic and alternative. And, like, and I've had that conversation. They'd be like, tell me about this strange money up in the northern lands. And uh, so I think it's pretty relative. It's also relative to uh, the time we are in and the changing ways we finance. So I think that, like you said, in a way, everything is becoming alternative because some of the old models uh, are not gone, but have changed their place in the ecosystem of financing. So, uh, can you be specific on that? Well, I don't. Th- I don't feel it's possible, or, or even really that desirable, to to finance a feature film only within the Canadian system. I think mm-hmm. that has been a model for people in the past, but uh, to me, there's a lot of advantages of. of uh, of participating in the overall global market. One is that it gives you, you start that conversation early and then you're in that conversation when it comes time to actually bring the, the project to So you're securing the your global release because you're making sure you have partners in all of those markets. You're at so. least opening doors earlier on. Yeah. Right. So, um, and you might secure talent or cast from a, from a territory that would in, also allow you to access financing. Sure. So just... Just curious, when you have a property that you're looking at, and again, alternative financing aside, just financing, how do you go about deciding how to attack the big mound of money that you have to go find? It's so project specific. It really is. Um, You know, there's projects that are one-stop shops in, you know, any number of various places in the world. Like what? Like a, a horror film or... A, no, not, not necessarily. necessarily. It's, it's so about who's involved. It has to do with genre, but it has to do with, okay, who are the producers? Who is the director? What are their re- relationships with, say, agencies in L.A.? Um, and what, what's the budget range? I just produced a, a movie um, in Vancouver in the winter um, uh, starring Peter Dinklage from Game of Thrones that was a one-stop shop financing at a, a relatively low budget. Um, but, you know, I'm also just now finishing a co-production between Canada and Denmark that is an incredibly complex uh, financing financial structure that is the opposite of one-stop shop. So it's mm-hmm. so specific to who's involved. So I, I couldn't say there's one way unless I sort of used a case study. Okay, well, we may, if we have time, we'll, we'll invite you to do that. Um, John, um, what does alternative financing mean for you? Um, well, you, you mentioned at the start, Catherine, um, about uh, project financing uh, and corporate financing be the two areas. And, and uh, Daniel and Alex have talked about you know, a project or a, or a show or a game and how to fund that specifically. Um, for us, again, at, at, at Boat Rocker, there's two things. There is those right down to the project financing. And when I hear the word crowdfunding, I think, Every piece of content that you get made is 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 crowdfunded. There are a crowd of people out there that that you need to get capital from. And sometimes, in Daniel's last example, there it might just be one person. You may have a studio, uh, a major broadcaster, uh, and that's your crowd, um, along with support from from perhaps uh, uh, broadcasters and and the system in Canada. Um, or your crowd is a lot larger. Uh, we've done TV shows, uh, co-productions where. Most recently, a show with CBC called X Company. We had 13 
financiers in, in the finance plan of that show, and, and for a one-hour drama, that's that's quite a lot. And the and the management and the and the uh, arrangements uh, one has to put in place to make sure that the creative ends up with one voice, and uh, but the financing has thirteen uh, is is quite a challenge. Can you tell us some of those thirteen, just because I'm confused? Sure, yeah, uh, um, I can for, hopefully from memory, but but certainly with CBC and and the support from from tax credits and, and uh, uh, Canada, we had uh, broadcasters in uh, France, broadcasters in Hungary, uh, and broadcasters in the US. We had distribution partners both in Europe and in the US, Sony. Uh, in the US was on board. And then we had a co-production partner in a, a wonderful company called Pioneer who does a lot of uh, co-production work with Canadian production houses um, who themselves bring uh, uh, two or three parties in the Hungarian system, uh, uh, including tax credits and, and other support there. So together, uh, in this case, it was Temple Street making a one-hour drama with a co-producing partner called Pioneer in Hungary. And the, the entire show was shot in Hungary. Wow. Um, and uh, pulling together the Canadian Broadcast, uh, commissioning uh, Hungarian, France, uh, uh, distribution partners, it tallied up to 13, uh, 13 uh, uh, cells on the finance spreadsheet uh, to put that funding together for, for a show. And I think when it comes to television, I can speak to, to you know, certainly one-hour dramas or, or bigger shows. I think once you get above a certain level of budget, uh, in my experience, probably in around the $1.3 to $1.5 million per episode, um, which is you know a huge amount of money, but, but uh, anything below that, and I think your crowd can be a little smaller and that can be funded, I think, in Canada. Um, anything over that uh, in order to deliver the creative uh, vision of the, of the, of the showrunners, I think... Oh, uh, has to have a bigger crowd funding it. It has to have uh, international distribution partners. It has to have probably at least one or two pre-sales into territories outside of Canada in order to get the budget level you're looking for. So there is a bit of a, uh, um, I, I think, a level uh, uh, that we we in the, and certainly in the in the, uh, in the scripted uh, one-hour business uh, um, um, uh, have to look at. And I think over that, it's the crowd's bigger. Below it, you can make it smaller and. It's not. It's not that it's more manageable. It's just. It just becomes the reality of of making a very expensive uh, piece of content. So the business changes a little. The business affairs, the finance team, uh, uh, the team that you have to build in your company in order to support creating that uh, uh, those funds and managing the crowd uh, becomes a, ne- a necessity. It becomes a very important part of your business and. We're not as small businesses necessarily set up to do that. So as you get, as you make more content, as you make bigger content, your team of people uh, um, within your organization or outsource becomes bigger and bigger. And you have to, ma- the marriage of that business and creative becomes even more important um, as you try to raise the funds necessary for your creative team to deliver what they want to deliver. Uh, and, and that ultimately is the goal uh, with, with some of the more expensive pieces of content that, that we make. Um, and of course, in the digital and other worlds, it's a little bit different. But it, 
and ultimately it's um it, it is i think the crowdfunding is the way to think of it there is funds out there they're available in many different places and you have to just absolutely persevere uh, uh, hustle and work very very hard within your organization to find uh, uh, the capital that you need uh, to make that project work and if you believe in it enough and you know where to go and, and how to hustle to get that then you know good things can happen and I think just finally on the corporate side, that we're always going to have that. But we decided to try and capitalize our company in order to try and uh, make make that a little easier. Uh, um, I don't think it's necessarily done that because every project, no matter how well capitalized you are, has to stand on its own two feet. It has to live and breathe as a, as a financially astute decision, uh, uh, whether you're putting up some of your own capital or whether it's other people's. Either way, you have to make a business out of this. Um, and, and I think, once again, that marriage of looking at the IRR and the financial returns available uh, on any piece of content um, is, is a vitally important part. And, and we don't tackle any content at our company that we don't think can deliver that return, whether that's for our capital going in or, or for any other third party, because everybody is looking for a return. Everyone needs to find the business of, of what we do, uh, um, a, a meaningful pursuit. And uh, and thankfully, they're, they're not mutually exclusive. It can absolutely work. You can get a great piece of content, a wonderful uh, um, piece of content that can be exploited in many different ways and, and deliver a, a good return. And I'll talk a little bit more maybe on the corporate finance side later, Catherine, yeah, sure. you know, in terms of how that return is vital, how you set yourself up as, a, as an organization, as a company, as a partnership, and what you have to do to try and make your company look as predictable and sustainable as possible in order to try and get that capital. Because uh, Well, that's, a, that's actually a, a good segue to maybe um, a point of view from Anne-Marie. Um, certainly when I was conducting the research um, for the paper that I mentioned, um, speaking to financiers or investment bankers or private equity people who have invested in companies like um, John's or Nine Story or some of the other Canadian success stories, overall, the comment is, well, the problem with the content business is it's project by project. You know, it's not like you're setting up a, a manufacturing line and, you know, getting the widget out in some beautiful uh, form. Or even uh, if you talk about um, um, new media where you can scale uh, a solution like Uber um, and have such spectacular uh, unicorn results um, every time I'm assuming every time a, a, one of us goes out to finance a project, it's starting at ground zero. I mean, you, your Rolodex grows and your relationships grow, but really every project is a, a standalone. And Anne-Marie, would you say that that is the primary obstacle for companies looking for uh, third-party capital? Um, well, it's only an obstacle if they refuse aggregating their projects into a company format. So it's... It's, it's totally doable. It's just shifting the view of how to look at a company. Okay. That takes a little bit of work. All right. And we'll hear one of the things that Anne-Marie does do is uh, offer um, workshops in this area. And I know she's been working with the CMPA. And if, I encourage you to, if you have a chance to participate, um, uh, you can learn a lot from, from her advice on those. But before, so let's just go, jump to corporate. So, Daniel, are you building a company or are you building a pile of feature films? I would like to believe I'm building a company. I'm not going <laughs> to be too presumptuous, but that's the idea. 
Yeah, absolutely. So tell, so are you trying to capitalize that company um, out for third-party investment, or are you you doing it organically? How are you doing that? I think the first step after project to project is is not so much corporate, but more slate. Mm-hmm. So um, rather than focusing on you know someone investing money into my company directly. I'm more interested in saying, look, let's look at a grouping of, of projects right. um, or maybe even an ongoing relationship project. And that's been a tradition multiple, in Hollywood for sure, for features sure. in yeah. a way that doesn't exist so much in television. Would that be a fair statement? I uh, would defer on television. I'm, I'm uh, newer to that space. So, but for features, that's not uncommon. Um, and, uh, but it's constantly shifting. And who would be those people that would be interested? Like just again, getting into the specifics for our audience. Are those, you know, private equity funds or hedge funds or individuals? Where would you be going to look for that kind of money? Uh, it's, it's all of the above. Uh, the most in-depth conversations I've had have been with companies connected to hedge funds. Um, Here in Canada or uh, in, no, no, nobody in Canada. <laughs> uh, and uh, those are the groups that seem interested. Um, and, you know, but I'll be honest, I'm not necessarily desperate for slate funding. It's mm-hmm. an interesting conversation. Right. Um, but it is working for me right now to look at each project as, you know, look at fin- the financing process individually for each project. What I am trying to do is create a uh, like an ethic or a sensibility that people can recognize that does cross over from project to project. Um, so you know. So that's a brand. It's a brand. It's uh, you know something I'm hoping people can recognize as uh, something I consistently bring or my company consistently Just brings. Just like we to all knew what Merchant Ivory stood for, you will sure. all understand what sure. your films stand for. Yeah, and mm-hmm. if if that. I'm not interested in tr- hard selling anyone on any kind of corporate or slate financing. If they see that that makes sense based on the recognition of value, then I'm happy to to sort of explore it, and I am. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I'm more focused on being consistent with quality and identifying value mm-hmm. um, and what brings value to to content. And Alex, how in terms of corporate development and financing. Are you at a stage now with your company that you're looking to find investors or how, what is what is it that you're thinking of? No, I think I'd, I'd be probably a different one in that like, I think the company for me, it's almost like a lifestyle choice as much as anything. Like I, I've uh, done projects that I'm just basically passionate about. So I, I first worked as a producer, got my first feature done right out of school, got into distribution because I was really unhappy with the distribution of the first feature. We we sold it out of the Toronto Film Fest. I was 22. I didn't really know what I was doing in terms of on the distribution side. And the film just completely disappeared. So I, I took the time to learn that piece. So I joined uh, Mongrel Media. I'd known Hussein from, from running a movie theater in Kingston back when I was a student in a film festival there. And I got a chance to learn the distribution piece uh, at a great time. The company really grew um, so that I could then take that knowledge and then bring it to my own projects but I've brought it to the projects that I'm passionate about. And so for me, a lot of the stuff that we've done, it's been what I think has made us very successful critically, but also one of the challenges financially is that each project has been so different than the last. So the first one was like a 
really groundbreaking, but like a 300 page documentary comic book. So that had never really been done um, all around Igor Kank, who was the fellow arrested in the world's biggest bicycle theft bus. So 300, 300 sold, or 3,000 stolen bicycles in Toronto. Um, it was a national bestseller, which was amazing. Number one on Amazon. But a lot of that was tied to the fact he'd been he'd been busted while we were in production. Um, so it was a completely <laughs> unrepeatable uh, scenario that then, you know, the next project we did is it's like equal parts interactive documentary with uh, with a graphic novel component. So it was interviews with four people who'd attempted suicide and survived. So again, um, a really kind of uh, a social issue documentary again. Um, tackling it, but a completely different model. Um, and, you know, the book made the New York Times reading list, which is incredible. And then that drove the awareness towards the interactive component. But how do you monetize the interactive component? Um, in that case, it's incredible that, you know, that we live in the country that we do. And we have organizations like the National Film Board that are supporting these these projects. Um, but it's, you know, how do you monetize it? Right. And then in the next case, we did uh, like a satire video game uh, dealing with the oil and gas industry. Um, called Pipe Trouble, and so uh, which you may have heard of, and um, and so it was again like a very unique model that again it cut through the clutter in a way that a lot of projects don't. And in the time I was with Mongrel, it was incredible that we got to deal with films like The Corporation, Manufactured Landscapes, Jesus Camp, Crude Awakening, Iraq and Fragments, some of the best uh, best documentaries. It was an amazing time this four year stretch. But I found that with those documentaries, you're usually reaching one segment of the population who a lot of the time is already on board with the uh, with with what you're looking at or aware of what you're looking at. And I think what we were able to do is with these cross platform or, or kind of new forms of documentary storytelling, we've been able to engage audiences that wouldn't otherwise be engaged. And I think that's led to to some of the critical and awareness that we've had with the projects. But the challenge is, is that, you know, each project is you're starting from right. scratch. And how do you take that from there? So, well, that would be a good segue to Anne-Marie. I'm very curious mm. to hear what she thinks about um, Alex's business plan. So just to just to give you a little preamble on this, I'm not putting these these guys on the spot. We actually asked Anne Marie to speak to each of them um, before this, so she so she has had a chance to interact with each of the of our panelists. Sure. Um, well, we did have a little bit of a conversation. So my first question to him was, "What do you intend to do with the company?" So just the fact that he said it's his lifestyle business, right there. Um, <laughs> dictates a fair bit of how much room he has to to access outside capital. So, but nonetheless, I still would say that what's really interesting about what he's doing is the timeliness of it. So, it, look at the time historically. When would you see a company like Magic Leap raise seven hundred and eighty-five million as they had in the past while? In speaking with Alex, I realized he was very comfortable in exploring platforms, technologies. It's just the panoply of whatever technology or media form works to express his story. He's totally bold and brave to do it. So there is still capital outside of my world of standard capital is high net worth individuals, institutional money, some debt financing, the government Kickstarter type crowdfunding and whatnot for me are very alternative. So even in my so-called standard world where I'm seeing options for you on the project to projects, you still won't have to link as a company. I think 
at your stage of growth, you're doing the right thing of just exploring media forms. You're, you're, it's a laboratory for you. So why would you change that? It's working at this time. However, for project to project where I'm seeing some avenues that did not exist even two and a half years back, are there are venture fund arms of companies, mostly U.S.-based, that are adjacent to entertainment. So, for example, when I say venture funds, I make a clear distinction between that and venture capital, very different models. The VC world, I, I don't really, I don't believe it suits content very well unless it plans to change its rules of operating. But the, the venture funds are a little different. So in Alex's world, in one of his very creative projects, as long as there was a technology component, I would see things such, I would see companies such as Adobe Ventures or a Technicolor Ventures being very interested. And what I'm watching with the Samsung Ventures, the Qualcomm Ventures, they have their so-called venture funds. I call them the million dollar lottery tickets because they really don't care um, what happens to that million. They're literally out, out looking for companies, even projects that showcase their products or somehow make them look good so that they're uh, they're building their own brand. So again, so even if, if for whatever reason you're not at the stage of thinking company, and again, I'm, I'm holding the thought because I think you can be structured as company, but just project to project, there are there is more capital out there for you. Those are, are two right there. And how um, can we switch over to this um, oh, this sure. feature film world? Because that's, oh, I mean, yeah. technology, it feels like, certainly when I was doing that kind of survey of what money is out there, it feels like anything that has a technology piece in it, great. But if you're working in good old-fashioned storytelling movies... How does somebody like uh, Daniel or or somebody who has not as had a hit movie? I mean, once you've had a hit, it can it changes your life, I'm sure. But prior to having a hit film, what 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 would you give him as advice? Sure. Well, the last few years, the attraction of content as an investment category has really grown, specifically in feature film. It's become the wild card for any pools of capital. So. Whether most of my work is company focused, I make the one exception for large budget feature. So again, just because I I was completely shocked at the craziness that surrounds parties willing to invest in feature film. So (laughs) quite seriously, I've seen people leave Wall Street that were very rational people in their jobs. And the minute that they enter the feature film world, it's as if they took a stupid pill and go very stupid very fast. So... In, so Daniel has a few options actually open to him. Um, I've, I've taken capital from very high net worth individuals who came together as a group in one instance and funded portion into company and portion into slate. So you're right. That's a very easy next step for you. However, on the feature film side, I'm, I'm truly amazed. I have seen capital, as you commented, one is the hedge fund groups, American hedge fund groups and trading groups, UK, US in particular, are forever looking for projects and dollar amounts never seem to be an issue. There was a group two years ago that I just first conversation, I said, well, I'm looking for 250. Uh, Slate a feature, they didn't bat nine. They said, well, we actually only started 250 and that's 250 million. So, So the dollar amounts weren't 
the challenge. The challenge was more the terms on the money. When you're dealing with those groups, the their timeline for generating returns is very short. It tends to be, because it's a very ADD-ish crowd. So for them, it's three years. Everything is three years. So the only way I was able to structure a deal around feature, because how, especially I deal a lot in animation, you can't put out a significant feature in three years. Like that's a, a short timeline. So what I did was I would break the pool of capital into two portions, the debt portion and an equity portion. It's usually the equity that they want the three-year, they they will allocate the funds in, in a three-year period. With debt, there was much more wiggle room. So what I did was draw it a longer timeline and allocate a portion of the capital on a debt timeline. And at the very end, when the project needed capital, especially when it came to tipping off into the P&A element, is when I triggered the equity. So that was one clear way of working it. But that's using, just staging it was how I pulled that off. So so that's for that's one source. The other source, again, that truly amazes me is Canada. Toronto, obviously, is very much into development. I mean, here, land development um, buildings. The wealth that sits with developers um, rivals many of these smaller institutional funds that I'll deal with. And the other interesting part in this is the, their willingness to lend capital. So how many times am I looking for capital for a feature? And I don't do many features. I just, I, I can't get my head around project financing really. But again, the off, the off time I will for various reasons. Uh, the ability to source the capital and lend it, there, there's so many options in this country. You just have to reach out and you will be surprised at the number of parties willing to do that. So, so just in terms of the bit of feature and company, I think from what I've seen, I've been doing this for a fairly long time, um, 17-ish years plus, I've had more capital come my way or people offering it than I, in the past two, three years and than the previous 15. And again, a lot of it is for, for, for feature. Um, I'm going to interrupt you because we're yes. running short of time, go, so go ahead. we need to okay. go to John. So that minutes. was good on features. That was good on technology. So what about a big burgeoning TV company that's already successfully raised um, equity from, uh, from uh, uh, that's all public, right, from Fairfax um, this year? Any thoughts on what John might be doing or more than he's already doing? He's doing a lot. For sure. A uh, few thoughts there. So... In my conversation with John and, and the little bit of a scan that I, I know their projects, but I certainly wasn't all that familiar with the company. I've really liked how selective they've been in terms of, well, their slate, their financiers and whatnot. So, but to go forward, um, I'm going to suspect, and here I had to make a few assumptions around companies, so pardon me, John, because I, I don't have access to your financials, nor do I want them um, <laughs> at this point in time. No, I just, I'd rather not know the information, quite frankly. So my suspicion is the, the fact that Fairfax was a majority investor means that the management is viewing the world in, in the following way that a small slice of a, a big pie is going to be worth more than a big slice of a small pie. They're already in that arena where it's just about strong growth. And in so doing that, they have to be very aware of market multiples. So 
your current financing, from what I'm seeing, at least in this last portion, is is Canadian based, North American based. I, I deal a fair bit in other capital markets, emerging markets, most mostly China, quite simply, and and North American companies a little bit in the UK. There, the multiples in the two territories, I'll call them West and East, there's a tremendous gap between the two. So I did a quick scan just to give you an example of um, what that looks like and what it could mean for you. So this was all done yesterday before the DHX notice, of course, of their new financing and before the transaction announcement this morning of Comcast acquiring DreamWorks. <clears throat> So pardon me. So I was looking at a few a few criteria. So I was seeing that the multiples being awarded to emerging entertainment companies versus mature companies, there was quite a gap between the two. There's not a lot of pure play, so I'm I'm a bit strapped in coming up with like a great average of 10 companies. So the multiple being used is called enterprise value to EBITDA, but simply let's just view it as a multiple on EBITDA for simplicity's sake. So I was looking at Lionsgate. So again, this is emerging versus mature. Lionsgate, this was yesterday's trading. Lionsgate was a 27 times, so that's an emerging company. I'm looking at a restructured DreamWorks, which sits between the mature and the emerging. They're at 18 times. I take a look at a more mature company, DHX. Sorry to say this, Catherine. It's only at 7.5 times. Well, you would also want to ask about Canadian uh, market versus U.S. market. Oh, no, for sure. Multiples. But again, this is just a purely a multiple space. Don't, don't worry, John. <laughs> so, well, look. Well, all right. Fair enough. And, but, and Disney's at 11. So I'm saying that emerging market companies are attracting a higher multiple because the expectation of the market is that their ability to grow, grab grab opportunities out there, I think are in many ways more available to them. So there's, there's a latent value to be exploded, and certainly I'm seeing it in, in that comparison. And Marie, I'm so sorry, but we're going to have to actually cut that off. Okay, cut this one more off. point. One more point. All right. So I'll, <laughs> I'll skip emerging media because there's a play there. But the other one is in the emerging international markets. I was telling John earlier, I do a fair bit of work. China, mostly Shanghai, Beijing, animation, and and Canada. And so there I look more at a price earning basis, a bit of a different multiple. So just crudely put, where I do a scan of North American-based companies. They average trading at a 20 times PE. When I'm looking at emerging markets, most, mostly China's where I do a fair bit of work, the multiple there is 60 times. So strategic investment from an emerging from a company in emerging market is actually going to enhance your valuation. So going out to capital, if you have a business relationship prior to going out for capital that involves a company in one of these regions, I would put a premium to your multiple. Um, so I'm going to interrupt you. John, did you get all of that? Oh, oh. <laughs> okay, I'll take any of those values. Frankly. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and our small businesses in, in, in this world and trying to create content, uh, yeah, I mean, just being in this room and having a business is, is, a, is a bit of a joy and, and working uh, every day to try and make content. But I, can I just make one comment? Sure I think, thing. You know, in terms of what we've said here, I think the, the key for us, and, and, and Alex and, and Daniel both uh, said it, it's you have to have a reason to get the money. Now, it's either a project, whether you're passionate about it or you want to make it work, and, and your company, your team of people want to get the show and the content made. 
um, or, or you have a reason to build a company or, 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 or you know, hire new people and grow. You have to have that reason um, and, and a strong point of view in what you stand for and, and building up the, the, the financials and, and what you're doing is, is, is really the essential part of it. There's no point just going to raise capital for, for, you know, for capital's sake. In our case, we wanted to try and build a company. We wanted to try and build a global business that had distribution, which we had never done which had digital teams, uh, uh, software programmers, app developers. We'd never done any of that. Build a brands business. So you take IP that gets created in Canada and try and exploit it in multiple ways around the world. So we had a reason uh, to go and say, well, we need money to add a distribution business. We need money to add new people to the company. We need money to to build a brand business. And we think we can be as, as good as anybody else out there. And, and the people in Canada that we've hired uh, uh, and now starting to go to New York and LA, et cetera, are... Are, are people that we're bringing together to have the same point of view and, and stand for what what Boat Rocker and the values of Boat Rocker are. So trying to build that team of people up uh, and the reason, and when we went to Fairfax for the capital, again, no one's going to give you money unless you set out that vision for why you want it. Why are you here asking me for a dollar or, or, or 20 million dollars? The same dollars? goes for projects too. Every right? project, Every, exactly. It's all the Everything same. has to right. come together. So whether it's a project and, and Daniel talked about the directors and the writers and the packaging of, of a great team of people, that's a vision for a project and you buy into that or you don't. Same for a company. Where are you going? Why do you need my money? What are you going to do with this and how are you going to grow and ultimately give a return back to the shareholders? We that's, focused on that. So that's a great, I was my last question to the group before a Q&A that I'm getting signaled here for, is one tip for the group on what it is, how it is, or the, you know, let's say the path to success in securing that alternative financing. One tip. The key tip. <laughs> uh, one word only? No. no. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't think there really is one. I mean, but actually, I was quite inspired what you said about by what you said, John, um, and it kind of made me realize that I have taken an approach that was probably influenced by field of dreams. You know, it's definitely a if you build it, they will come approach. You know, basically, really focus on on creating something with value and and sort of trusting that people will notice and will show up. So don't be and, a financial engineer. I mean, I, of course you have to know who to talk to and, mm-hmm. and the questions to ask. Um, uh, but to me, that is the second step. And I have my more frustrated moments as I've been trying to create a viable business is when I have felt like I had to know all the right people and who to talk to and what time. And my much more confident, uh, you know, foot I'm on now is really focusing on on. The, the great work. You know, you could call it the product. You could call it the content. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and understanding, of course, how that relates to the people who are going to finance it. Right. But by focusing on the work itself, that's that's what has brought me more 
got Success, me more traction. Right. Yeah. yeah. And Alex, well, you've already said it's a lifestyle choice. So. Well, yeah. And I guess if I'm <laughs> if I'm mainly to be here to be speaking, I guess around in the Kickstarter stuff, just practically speaking, I would say that um, I would avoid doing a Kickstarter campaign if you don't already have an audience, because I think that 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 market's changed. So you definitely want to make sure you have an existing reach to do it. And I think the the other thing to keep in mind, I would say fifty uh, percent of the value of the Kickstarter is really in the marketing. I actually feel like in terms of building your audience and proving it and in our case beyond the money just at the Kickstarter raise what we were able to do is then get a lot more partners a lot more console interests and whatnot so it's a it's an incredible way to find your super fans it's an incredible way to start building your audience and, and get your traction so in our case like that all that media that we were able to get that's paid off in dividends as we start moving along because now you know in launch we launched last week we're going back to all those same people and we, we you know got in front of them and we've been kind of fostering and being able to respond to your core audience and have them involved from the get-go. So I'd say practically those are some of the values of a Kickstarter. All right. Well, thank you, everybody. I'm sorry that um, the conversation gets um, truncated or interrupted by me, but uh, I have a taskmaster here, Lisa, who now wants to open it up to Q&A, please. Anybody want to take opportunity? Doug? Hi, I just wanted to, um, Doug Barrett from the Schulich School of Business, ask what John's one-word tip was. Oh, right, sorry. You're absolutely right. What is your one-word tip? Um, Where did it become one word? It was one word. (laughs) Thank you for that, Doug. Yeah, I could give you a few. I think... um, I think it's, and we've heard a lot about it uh, today, I think it's about uh, having a, a real point of view, uh, standing for something and having a vision about where you're going. And then preparation. It's about being prepared. It's about packaging that vision up, whether it's financials or creative or Bibles or uh, uh, people attracted and attached to the project or the company. It's it's putting that together and being prepared and ready for the, the, the questions. You know, in other words, if we're looking at a, we've all been in front of a broadcaster asking, you know, pitching a project. Uh, it's, it's no different. The more you are prepared, the more you are packaged, the more you are passionate and have a view as to what you're all, all about, if you will. I know it sounds a little amorphous, but but I think there's a lot of ways you can grow your business and diversify into all sorts of areas. But I think you have to have a, a strand of of a clear vision and values within your organisation. Uh, uh, espouse that and put that out there, and I think uh, be prepared to to justify it. You might not hit the the right chord with everyone. It might not be right for for people, um, and they may not buy into that vision and passion and, and prep. But, uh, but if you are prepared, you will find, I think, a home and, and hopefully uh, the capital and money you need to, to, to build the, uh, create the content or, or build the company. Yes, the back. Hi. Um, most of the companies in Canada are very small, entertainment companies, so we wouldn't be able to get investors unless some of us have rich uncles or something. So I'm wondering if you can offer some suggestions for smaller companies, new ways of getting money, like, for example, the Internet. Is Netflix putting up any cash up front or online syndicators or anything else you can think of? Who are you directing that question to? Everyone. Oh, well, no, that's not fair. That would be four questions. Um, who, feel, who would like, who likes to answer that? One of you. I'll jump in. Okay, like, sure, I mean, go ahead, I think John. It, it's, it's somewhat similar to what we said. I mean, it is a, we're all in, in, in this small business in Canada, uh, and uh, there's 226 producers in this country. Um, and, uh, you know, there's just 
obviously there's just not room for all of them to make uh, their show or to build their company. It's just not gonna it's not gonna happen. Um, and consolidation is starting to be to begin, and we're seeing more and more of it. I think as more uh, vertical integration happens, more broadcasters becoming producers, becoming distributors, we're going to see a bit of a narrowing of that of that world. But but to the point, uh, yeah, absolutely. Netflix is p- putting up uh, a lot of capital. There are 307 platforms out there. So as you th- as you th- as you sit in Canada with an idea for a project or piece of IP or, or a vision for a company, you have to think that there's not just five buyers, uh, uh, i.e. broadcasters in Canada, there are 307 platforms. You have to know those platforms, you have to find the capital and 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 and, and go to those platforms to see if your project can get on off the ground. Uh, we were talking in the panel a while ago and I was, I was saying to Daniel that it, it seems like the world of making content, a TV show or, or a, a half hour or one hour drama, it is like the, the the business of an independent film. It's it's you have to hustle everywhere. You cannot just rely on one market, one or two buyers. Uh, um, there are three hundred and seven people who might might give you capital to get your project off the ground. Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, uh, all the different new platforms emerging, as well as the current ones in Canada and elsewhere. And that's unfortunately uh, uh, what we have to do. We have to hustle out there and find uh, uh, the market uh, um, for for your content. It's actually a point that we haven't emphasized maybe enough today is that the previous world of the Canadian system is no, I don't want to say is no longer viable, but we are now all global producers. Uh, The internet has busted up that uh, comfortable place we are. So um, another question? I'm not sure. Les, go ahead. This is uh, to uh, Anne-Marie, please. Um, You mentioned the Venture fund arms of companies was a, a new and exciting source for you. But w- when they invest, um, what sort of a return are they expecting? Or what percentage do they charge then? Rule of thumb is that they're. I would play it safe by assuming it's a 20% year over year. Their timelines could be, they tend to be fairly generous with time. They're, they would probably invest for a period of five to seven years. Usually the party overseeing the venture arm has a fair bit of discretion versus using a standard type um, capital deployment scheme. So I would always just assume a 20%. I would assume a 20%. Um, John, you took an investment from BBC. Worldwide early on, how did that work? Um, was that complicated? Great. It, that- it, it, it was. Uh, it was all of the above, <laughs> but it was ultimately a very. Uh, a, 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 a great investment, I think, for for us. Uh, we took on um, BBC Worldwide as a, distrib- a distribution partner for five years for our content. So we had in the very uh, embryonic stages of Temple Street, we had a partner that was uh, uh, able to offer not only the the capitals coming in to support the content from a distribution advance perspective, but also who, uh, a wonderful international player who knew all of those platforms I was referring to earlier. And we, as a small team of ten people at that time, you know, couldn't uh, possibly fathom our way to to go out and do that. So it was a it was a wonderful investment from our perspective. I think it worked out very well for BBC in the end, and we bought the the twenty five. 
10% back from them about a year and a half ago uh, when we decided to try and build our own distribution business. So it didn't quite make sense, but but it was a, it was a great start to the, the company. It helped us tremendously build it and, and uh, have some security, if you will, on that distribution side. Let us understand the business. Let us get out there and shadow them around the world as they, as they did what they did. So I think now that we've built our own distribution business and we're growing that, we, we'll take some of those lessons from a wonderful independent distributor uh, such as BBC. But again, that's uh, it's uh, horses for courses. It was the right investment at the right time for us. Um, now we've kind of grown up and, and moved on from that. And uh, the next is the next investment we took was Fairfax. And hopefully, you know, one day we'll grow up uh, even further, and uh, we'll know what we want to do, and uh, we'll, we'll 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 take that take the next step of, of raising further capital. I think if we can have uh, reason to deploy it. Is there any more? Oh, yeah, one more. Oh, one more. Okay, this is, I think, our last question. Last question. This goes to Anne-Marie. <laughs> Sorry to put you on the hot, in the hot seat, Anne-Marie. Um, but listening to the conversation and, you know, Daniel, Alex, and John are all at a certain stage in their companies, um, at varying stages, of course. But um, in order to get sort of venture capital or, you know, third-party capital that is not either government funding or in the, in the usual way in Canada, what stage would you say that a company has to be in? Because initially a company is just going from project to project. What, how big a slate or a library or an impact do they have to have um, in order to then go out to some of these bigger investments? I think the rules in that are changing. If you asked me that five years ago, I would say that I would want to see clear financial viability over the past three years, consolidated financials, some recurring revenue, be it a, a slate, a library of TV productions or a feature slate. Uh, given that the, the strong, like explosive growth worldwide, I would think that it sits between that and between what a, video, a hit in a video game company would be the one hit wonder like a king going out for public capital. I think it's just between that. So relatively um, three, four feature films, three, four TV shows, it's more the, the emphasis on growing a company and a brand. And I, I did one of those financings two years ago. I know that works. It's, it's the structure, the forward thought, the ability to have a, a strong growth plan and reflect that in a reasonably, in a realistic financial model. It, it's the mindset. The younger is viable today, for sure. Okay, I think that wraps um, up our session. Thank you so much um, for coming out this morning.